Would you turn again, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians 4. For those who don't know, we're in a series on Sunday evenings going through 1 Corinthians. So far, we've taken a chapter at a time. I don't know if we'll carry on at that pace, but we've done a chapter at a time and got to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you're watching ITV, what are you interrupted by every 15 minutes or so? Adverts, aren't you? You'll know that. And what are the adverts doing? Well, you know that too. They're persuading you to want something and to want it now. I must have it now. And how do they do that? Well, I find that a bit odd. Let's take, for example, I've noticed car adverts seem to me to be a bit odd because they don't usually tell you much about the car. They certainly don't have an engineer describing to you the car's performance and its fuel consumption and telling you what uh, radio it has and whether it has air conditioning. I I don't notice them doing that. It seems to be, it seems to me nowadays, car adverts are a load of computer graphics that are showing you a load of images. It's all about style. It's all about portraying a style. This car has this style and therefore if you drive it, you'll have that style too. It's all about image. It's all about looks. And that rather reflects our society. Our society values image and style and what can be seen now and what can I have now. And I hope we're all aware that what our society is like is likely to influence us. It is almost bound to have got into us in some way and to set our values. Well, society in Corinth was like that. If you were taken back in time machine, you'd think, this, wow, this place is so different from Loughborough 2022. But actually, in fundamentals, it wasn't that different. It was a society that valued image and impressiveness and what it can see now. And that had got into the church, the church that this letter was written to. And it was causing spiritual problems. It was causing disunity. And it was causing them to put some leaders who were impressive on a pedestal and look up to them and to despise and look down on other leaders that didn't seem so impressive. It was causing them to focus on now, not eternity. And 1 Corinthians 4 is written to correct that. That's the point of this chapter, to correct those problems. So let's look at it now and get a correction we need to guard us in our society that values what it can see, style, image, and what we can have now. We're going to see, I hope, here in this chapter, one principle. This chapter is getting across one principle. You may be able to spot others, but there's one that underlies the whole thing. Behind all the teaching in chapter 4 is one principle. Here's the principle. Christians look ahead to Jesus returning rather than judging by what they see now. And so they value faithfulness, not flashiness. By the way, children, if you want, what's this word flashiness? I mean showiness. Show off people who are trying to impress others. The principle is, did you get it? Christians are people who look ahead to Jesus returning rather than judging by what they see now. And so they value faithfulness, not flashiness. Now, the Corinthians were in a society opposite to that principle, and so are we. 
But Christians are future-focused people. That's why we started the service with Revelation 22. That's why we sung all those three songs that all end up with pointing us to Jesus coming back. Because Christians look ahead to Jesus returning rather than judging by what they see now. And so they value faithfulness, not flashiness. There's one principle. We're also, I hope, going to see two areas of application. And they are relationships in the church, especially to leadership in the church, and relationships with the world. Now, as we go through the chapter, keep in mind the one principle. Do you remember it? Keep in mind the one principle. And also, as we go through the chapter, look out for the two areas of application. The Corinthians were divided. They were like a fan club to some leaders and they looked down on other leaders. So look out for how we should relate to each other in the church and particularly the place of leadership, what leadership should be like in the church. The Corinthians were also too bothered about what their society thought of them. They'd taken on their society's values. They wanted to look impressive to their society. So as we go through the chapter, look out for what should we expect the world to think of us? How bothered should we be about whether the world is impressed with us or quite the opposite? So we've got one principle, we've got two applications, areas of application, and we've got three blocks of teaching. I'm going to spend the rest of this evening going through the three blocks of teaching that make up 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So let's work through uh, chapter 1 Corinthians, chapter 4. The first block of teaching is verses 1 to 7, and it's about judging or waiting. Verses 1 to 7. Now, this church, this letter was written to in Corinth, they had a problem. They They were pleased with their abilities. They admired leaders with impressive abilities. And they liked to show off those impressive abilities. God willing, we'll get on eventually to chapters 12 to 14 one week and we'll find there that they're all about it showing off their impressive abilities. And that atmosphere was bound to lead to judging each other. That's fairly straightforward to see, that if people are into showing off abilities, they're going to end up judging each other. People who don't look impressive will get judged. People who do look impressive will get judged because you want to pull them down because you want to look more impressive. They're judging each other. And that, of course, is going to tear the church apart. It's going to kill the church if it's allowed to continue, which, of course, is going to bring massive dishonour to Jesus. So Paul writes a stern chapter against this. And he gives three answers to this in this verses 1 to 7, three answers that are all linked. I'll run through them quickly for you now. Here's one. All you have is a gift, not earned. Why are you showing off? Because all you have is a gift, not earned. This is verse 7. Verse 7. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? What qualities do you have? What qualities do you have? Maybe you say, oh, I haven't got any qualities. Do you know, that's not humility, actually. That's unthankfulness if we take in that qualities are gifts from God. What qualities do you have? Maybe you're personable. 
good at relating to people, good at sympathising. Maybe you're well organised, you're reliable, you're on time and reliable and you do what you've committed to do. Maybe you're practical, good at making and mending. Maybe you're a plodder. You say, that's not a quality. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Keeping going, a plodder who keeps going, that's a quality. Right, where did you get your qualities from, whatever they are? Well, some you inherited from your parents. Some have developed through experiences, maybe childhood experiences that you're not even aware of. Maybe education, maybe painful experiences. You got them from experiences or you inherited them, basically. And you didn't control either of those. They were given to you by God. Gifts, not earned. Paul says to the Corinthian church and God says to us, so don't boast, don't divide, because everything you have is a gift, not earned. Why did God give to you? Here's his second answer he's giving to them to to deal with this problem. You are gifted in order to serve, so use it faithfully. Gifted in order to serve, so use it faithfully. This is verse 2. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. You've been given something, you've got to be faithful with it. It is particularly true of those who've been given the gospel to preach, of those who are in leadership in the church. That's the context here you'll see if you look at verse 1. So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. In other words, the gospel. There are lessons here for leadership in the church. But it's also true for all of us, whatever God has given to us. We are gifted in order to serve. So use it faithfully. That's the issue. Not how impressive it is, but are you using it faithfully? What's the difference between peacock's feathers and blackbird's feathers? Well, a peacock's feathers are to show off and to strut around. And a blackbird's feathers are to do something useful, fly around and get food for its family. Now, you could quibble and say the peacock does fly and it can do something useful, but I think you get the idea. The peacock struts around and shows off its feathers. The blackbird uses them to fly and gets food for its family. Christians' gifts are like blackbird's feathers, not peacock's feathers. Jesus isn't interested in how impressive they look. He's interested in how faithfully we use them. So do you take what he has given you, whatever those gifts may be, whatever? It might be just having time. He's given you time. It might be money. It might be an ability. It might be understanding of the Bible. It might be painful experiences you've had give you understanding of others on a deeper level than someone who hasn't had those experiences. Whatever the gift is, however impressive or unimpressive it looks, do you use it to serve others? Or do you use it for the spread of the gospel? The Corinthians admired what was flashy and they despised the simple faithful. And Paul's correcting this and here's a, here's a third answer he gives them. A servant is judged by his Lord and only by his Lord. That's verses 3 to 5. Verses 3 to 5. A stop, uh, to stop the Corinthians judging each other because look, you're servants. 
to be faithful, not flashy, and it's the Lord who judges whether you've been faithful in the end. Let's illustrate it like this, the Great British Bake Off. Now, I expect most of you know what the Great British Bake Off is, don't you? And if you don't, it's a TV programme where they're competing to bake cakes and bread and all sorts of things like that. Now, imagine you're watching the Great British Bake Off and you see someone whose cooking looks a mess and you judge. He's going to lose. He's going to be kicked out of the tent today because, look, his cooking looks a mess. And you see someone else and she makes this cake that looks spectacular. You think, there we go. She's going to be, do they call it the star baker? Something like that. She's going to win today. Look at that cake. Looks impressive. Now, what's wrong with your judgment? What's wrong with the judgment you've made? There are three things wrong with it. One is you are not the judge. You're not the judge. It's, what's he called? Paul Hollywood and Prue, is it? I think. Anyway, it's not you. You're not the judge. It's them. Here's the second thing wrong. You're judging too soon. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. And that person whose cooking looked a right mess might produce something wonderful. Uh, And that person whose cake looks so spectacular, when cut open, it might prove to be underbaked. And that leads to the third thing wrong, which is some things are hidden from you. You couldn't see what the cake would taste like. It's only the judge who cut it open and tasted it and could see. Now, all those three things are in verses four to five. You might spot them there if you have a look now. Verse four, don't you judge? No, because, verse four, it is the Lord who judges, not us. And he judges at the right time. Verse five, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. He will when when it's time. And, verse 5, he sees things that we don't see. When we make our ignorant judgments of other people, he even sees their hearts and he sees their motives. And we, like the Corinthians, need those lessons because, let's be honest, there is too much picking each other apart in the church. There is too much being expert on what others should do or what others haven't done or how you do it better than them if you were in their role. In the world, I don't know about your workplace, but I've experienced in every workplace, everyone knows how everyone else should do their job. That's in the world. But it shouldn't be in the church because we are not the judge. Now is not the time for judgment and only Jesus can see what's really going on in the heart, and in the motives. Within the church, we shouldn't judge by appearances. Why? Do you remember the principle behind this all? And it's it's an obvious principle from verses 4 and 5. It's this. Christians look ahead to Jesus returning rather than judging by appearances. And so they value faithfulness, not flashiness. Let's move on to the second block of teaching. And it's verses 8 to 13. In verses 8 to 13, we have crown or cross now. Crown or cross now. Again, the Corinthians had a problem. They were so pleased with themselves. They were so impressed by themselves. Verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings, and that without us. They thought they were Christian royalty. They weren't Christian peasants. 
They weren't even Christian middle class. They weren't even Christian aristocrats. They were Christian royalty. And they weren't just even Christian royal family. They're the kings. They are the top guys. So they thought. They're the spiritual elite. Now, why did they think that? Well, I'll guess at some reasons, but it's an educated guess. It could be because they lived in Corinth, and that was a sophisticated city. And if you've lived in the city and gone for a holiday in the countryside and met some country bumpkins, you might feel a bit superior to them. I think the Corinthians were probably like that. Yeah, they were more up to date, and they were more sophisticated than the Christians living in the villages around. And they could use clever arguments and make impressive speeches, unlike the simplistic approaches of those Jerusalem Christians. It may be because Corinth was a rich city. And if you're rich, you tend to think you've made it. You tend to be pleased with your wealth and your lifestyle, and that, it seems, had gone into the church. It may be, in fact, I'm sure it is because of this. The Corinthian church had showy gifts. It's like speaking in tongues. And we know from chapters 12 to 14 that they felt very impressed with themselves on that front. They, oh, they were above the other Christians who had less impressive looking gifts. They were higher life Christians. How superior to the apostles they felt. What were the apostles like? Have a look at verse 9. Verse 9. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. Like men condemned to die in the, in the arena, we have made a, been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. Now, the picture here might not be familiar to us, but it was to them because they were living in the Roman Empire. Think of the Romans conquering a country. Maybe they've conquered a province of Gaul or barbarians in Germany. And try to picture in your mind the Roman army marching back into Rome and they are leading their captives behind them. And in through the city gates, watched by all the city, come the captives. First of all is the defeated king and behind are his defeated nobles. Next, a dejected looking Army generals and leaders. If you wait around for long enough, you'll then see the ordinary foot soldiers chained up and being marched in. And at the back, at the very end, what will you see? The peasants and the criminals of the defeated area being dragged in, being jeered at, rotten fruit thrown at them. And where are they being led to? Remember, this is Rome. They're being led to the Colosseum. Not to be impressive gladiators, but to just be thrown to the lions, cat food. And that, says Paul, is the apostles. That's what the apostles were like. Last in the queue, lowest of the low. That's what they were in the world's eyes. Now, Paul doesn't give, here he's answering the the problem for the Corinthians, but do you notice he doesn't, in some senses, give an answer. He doesn't give an explanation of who's right and who's wrong. He doesn't explain what's wrong with the Corinthians' attitude. He doesn't explain what's right about the apostles. He just describes. But you're left with no doubt who's right and who's wrong. You can pick up what he means from his sharp, even sarcastic tone. You know, I hope you're not a sarcastic person. 
Sarcasm is dangerous and it is rarely to be used. But here's one place where it was used. And it was rightly used. He's sharp. He's even sarcastic. But he's not unloving. He does believe he's writing to Christians. And he believes Christians will see, without him even needing to explain, which one's right and which one's wrong, because they will see which one is following Christ. The way of the cross. And sadly, it's a lesson still needed today. I'll give you an example, and I'll start with the most blatant version of the example, or one of the most blatant. Each week, well over 10 million people listening, listen to one man preach at his megachurch and over the internet and over the TV. His name's Joel Osteen. They listen to him preach. And his, do you know what his best-selling book is called? Your Best Life Now. You can, how you can have your best life now. Now, he is just one of many examples of this. You can follow Jesus and combine it with the American dream. You can follow Jesus and combine it with a comfortable life. You can follow Jesus and combine it with achieving your goals, even though your goals happen to be the same as your neighbor's goals and happen to be things that your society values. Now, books have a blurb on the back. I've never read Your Best Life Now, uh, and I haven't read the blurb on the back. But do you think that Your Best Life Now would have as the blurb on the back, read this book, and you can be like the Apostle Paul. You can be, verse 13, the scum of the earth and the refuse of the world. Do you think that's what it's got on the back? Read this book so you too can be the scum of the earth. By the way, the word there was the word for... The stuff that you wash off, the dirtiest of dishes. You scrub off that stuff that's burnt on and, and, and then look at the plug hole afterwards. That's the word there. Read this book and you can be like that. I don't think so. I don't think that's what it says. Now, we can laugh at Joel Osteen. It's, it's easy to see through stuff like that. But we can have our own version. It's just a milder, lower quality version. I'll follow Jesus, and I'm not expecting a private jet. I'll follow Jesus, I'm not expecting him to make me a millionaire. But I am expecting a comfortable life. I'll follow Jesus, and I am expecting it to fit with the success I want. And when it impinges, I'll trim back on following him, not trim back on the success I want. I'll follow Jesus, but I, but I must be thought well of by the people who matter to me. It's not demanding a private jet, but it, but it is saying, I do expect certain things. And I'll follow him as long as it fits with those certain things. But, but, do you remember the principle? Christians look ahead to Jesus returning. Did you notice the repeated word in verse 8? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You Corinthians, you're now people, but no, Christians are people who look ahead to Jesus returning rather than judging by what they see now. And so they value faithfulness, not flashiness. And so they follow Jesus faithfully, even when it means those around them put them at the back of the queue and the bottom of the pile. They don't expect the world to crown them. 
No, they expect Jesus to crown them later, after they've carried the cross. Here's the third block of teaching. Let's have one more block of teaching and it finishes the chapter. It's verses 14 to 21. And it's spiritual father or empty talker. Spiritual father or empty talker. Let's think again about the Corinthian problem. What are the ancient Greeks famous for? Philosophers and clever speeches and big talkers. And this had got into the church. And the Corinthians were impressed by big talkers. But Paul says they are mere talkers with empty words. Verse 19, verse 19, I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Now, Paul talked, he had words, but they weren't empty words. He wasn't a mere talker because he came to them with the words of the gospel. And this powerful gospel had brought them eternal life. And so, in a sense, what could Paul say he was? If he brought them the words that brought them to eternal life, what could he say, in a sense, he was? The answer is in verse 15. He could say, I'm like your father. These people might be impressive teachers, but I'm your father because I brought you words of power that brought you to spiritual life. He was like their father in another way, too. I think of my father. My dad was a plumber. And I'm told, I don't really remember, but I'm told that um, by friends of the family that there used to be times when they'd see my dad coming along in his big boiler suit carrying his big bag of tools. And soon after would come little me, as a little boy, in my little boiler suit, with my little bag of tools. And I do have vague memories of watching him cut a copper pipe, and then copying him and trying to do it, and actually bending the copper instead of managing to cut it, things like that. Uh, Sadly, I can't remember most of it. Do not ask me to do your plumbing. I I haven't kept that knowledge. But... For me, it was just an interest, but in past generations, that's the way, that would be the trade you went into. That's how you learnt, copying your father. And that is the model in verse 16. Verse 15, I'm your father spiritually. Verse 16, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. I'm like a father to you, so follow me. Do you see the model of leadership here? Parenting. It's like parenting. Is parenting flashy? No, certainly not. Parenting doesn't look impressive. It's mostly unnoticed. It doesn't see quick results. In fact, it takes years and years to see the results of parenting. It will only be seen long afterwards. You can't do parenting over the internet and gain a great following and be a celebrity parent. I suppose Chris Kardashian's a celebrity parent, but I think she actually proves the point that you can't be a celebrity parent. It's not flashy. But it is so valuable. And it's the Bible's model for a church leader, a father. Not like the Roman Catholic Church. That is, let's look flashy and call him a father. But it's to be like a father, not to be called a father. 
Now, one of the things I'm trying to do as I preach, not just tonight, but, but most of the time, is to prepare the church for the future. That's one aspect of preaching. Churches need leaders. Churches all the time, including us, need to think about the future and look out for future leaders. What should leaders be like? A father. They're not seen by their impressive talk. That's not the way to identify them. Can they do an impressive talk? No, but by faithfully leading others. It's an unimpressive work. It's a long-term work. It must be a loving work. It must be a personal work. It must be a leading by example work. And a Christian leader cannot do it unless he is looking ahead to Jesus returning. Rather than going by appearances now. And so values faithfulness, not flashiness. Well, we've studied three sections in this chapter. I hope you've noticed how they apply to two areas of life. I hope you've got some lessons for our relationships in the church, particularly with leadership and relationships with the world. And behind them all was one principle. Do you remember the principle? But more importantly, does the principle describe you? Is this you? Christians look ahead to Jesus returning rather than judging by appearances now. And so value faithfulness, not flashiness.